prior to collapse, what you want is an effective retail segment and good customer service. After collapse, you regret not having an unreliable retail segment with shortages and long bread lines because then people would have been forced to learn to shift for themselves instead of standing around waiting for somebody to come and feed them. If you notice, none of the things I mentioned have any bearing on what is commonly understood as economic health. Prior to collapse, the overall macroeconomic positive is an expanding economy. After collapse, economic contraction is a given, and the overall macroeconomic positive becomes something of an imponderable, so we're forced to listen to a lot of nonsense. The situation is either slightly better than expected or slightly worse than expected. We're always either months or years from economic recovery. Business as usual will resume sooner or later because some television bobblehead said so. But let's take it apart. Starting from the very general, what are the current macroeconomic objectives if you listen to the hot air coming out of Washington at the moment? First, growth, of course. Get the economy going. We learned nothing from the last huge spike in commodity prices, so let's just try again. (laughs) That calls for economic stimulus, a.k.a. printing money. Let's see how high the prices go this time. Maybe this time we will achieve hyperinflation. Second, stabilizing financial institutions. Getting banks lending, that's important too. You see, we're just not in enough debt yet. That's our problem. We need more debt and quickly. Third, jobs. We need to create jobs. Low-wage jobs, of course, to replace all the high-wage manufacturing jobs that we've been shedding for decades now and replacing them with low-wage service sector jobs, mainly ones without any job security or benefits. Right now, a lot of people could slow down the rate at which they're sinking further into debt if they quit their jobs. That is, their job is a net loss for them as individuals as well as for the economy as a whole. But, of course, we need much more of that, and quickly. So that's where we are now. The ship is on the rocks, water is rising, and the captain is shouting, Full steam ahead! We're sailing to Afghanistan. (laughs) Do you listen to Ahab up on the bridge, or do you desert your post in the engine room and go help deploy the lifeboats? If you thought the previous episode of uncontrolled debt debt expansion, globalized Ponzi schemes, and economic hollowing out was silly, then I predict that you will find the next episode of feckless grasping at macroeconomic straws even sillier except that it won't be funny. What is crashing now is our life support system, all the systems and institutions that are keeping us alive. And so I don't recommend passively standing around and watching the show unless you happen to have a death wish. Right now, the Washington economic stimulus team is putting on their scuba gear and diving down to the engine room to try to invent a way to get a diesel engine to run on seawater. They spoke of change, but in reality, they're terrified of change and want to cling with all their might to the status quo. But this game will soon be over, and they don't have any idea what to do next. So what is there for them to do?
Forget growth, forget jobs, forget financial stability. What should their realistic new objectives be? Well, here they are. Food, shelter, transportation, and security. Their task is to find a way to provide all of these necessities on an emergency basis in absence of a functioning economy, with commerce at a standstill, with little or no access to imports, and to make them available to a population that is largely penniless. If successful, society will remain largely intact and will be able to begin a slow and painful process of cultural transformation and eventually develop a new economy, a gradually deindustrializing economy, at a much lower level of resource expenditure, characterized by quite a lot of austerity and even poverty, but in conditions that are safe, decent, and dignified. If unsuccessful, society will be gradually destroyed in a series of convulsions that will leave a defunct nation composed of many wretched little fiefdoms. Given its largely depleted resource base, a dysfunctional collapsing infrastructure, and its history of unresolved social conflicts, the territory of the former United States will undergo a process of steady degeneration punctuated by natural and man-made cataclysms. Food, shelter, transportation, security. When it comes to supplying these survival necessities, the Soviet example offers many valuable lessons. As I already mentioned, in a collapse, many economic negatives become positives and vice versa. Let us consider each one of these in turn. The Soviet agricultural sector was plagued by, in, by consistent underperformance. In many ways, this was the legacy of the disastrous collectivization experiment carried out in the 1930s, which destroyed many of the more prosperous farming households and herded people into collective farms. Collectivization undermined the ancient village-based agricultural traditions that had made pre-revolutionary Russia a well-fed place that was also the breadbasket of Western Europe. A great deal of further damage was caused by the introduction of industrial agriculture. The heavy farm machinery alternately compacted and tore up the topsoil while dosing it with chemicals, depleting it and killing the biota. Eventually, the Soviet government had to turn to importing grain from countries hostile to its interests, United States and Canada, and eventually expanded this to include other foodstuffs. The USSR experienced a permanent shortage of meat and other high-protein foods, and much of the imported grain was used to raise livestock to try to address this problem. Although it was generally possible to survive on the foods available at the government stores, the resulting diet would have been rather poor, and so people tried to supplement it with food they gathered, raised, or caught, or purchased at farmers' markets. Kitchen gardens were always common, and once the economy collapsed, a lot of families took to growing food in earnest. The kitchen gardens by themselves were never sufficient, but they made a huge difference. The year 1990 was particularly tough when it came to trying to score something edible. I remember one particular joke from that period. Black humor was has always been one of, uh, one of Russia's main psychological coping mechanisms. A man walks into a food store, goes to the meat counter, 
and sees that it is completely empty. And so he asks the butcher, don't you have any fish? And the butcher answers, no, here's where we don't have any meat. Fish is what they don't have over at the seafood counter. (laughs) Poor though it was, the Soviet distribution system never collapsed completely. In particular, the deliveries of bread continued even during the worst of times, partly because it has always been such an important part of the Russian diet and partly because access to bread symbolized the pact between the people and the communist government, enshrined in oft-repeated revolutionary slogans. Also, it is important to remember that in Russia, most people have lived within walking distance of food shops and used public transportation to get out to their kitchen gardens, which were often located in the countryside immediately surrounding the relatively dense, compact cities. This combination of factors made for some lean times, but very little malnutrition and no starvation. In the United States, the agricultural system is heavily industrialized and relies on inputs such as diesel, uh, chemical fertilizers and pesticides, and perhaps most importantly, financing. In the current financial climate, the farmer's access to financing is not at all assured. The agricultural system is efficient, but only if you regard fossil fuel energy as free. In fact, it is a way to transform fossil fuel energy into food with a bit of help from sunlight to the tune of 10 calories of fossil fuel being embodied in every calorie that is consumed as food. The food distribution system makes heavy use of refrigerated diesel trucks transporting food over hundreds of miles to resupply supermarkets. The food pipeline is long and thin, and it takes only a couple of days of interruptions for supermarket shelves to be stripped bare. Many people live in places that are not within walking distance of stores, not served by public transportation, and will be cut off from food sources once they're no longer able to drive. Besides the supermarket chains, much of the nation's nutrition needs are being met by an assortment of fast food joints and convenience stores, 